Welcome to Still No Plan with Jordan Granger and Autumn Webb. People tell you health tips and you're like, yeah, and then you do them and you're like, well, this is crazy that they like actually <laughs> work. I always feel that when I like drink water and I'm like, wow, I feel better. <laughs> like my skin's clear and all these things. And it's like, yeah, everyone fucking told you that. Like always. I know. I listen to a lot of health podcasts with, you know, different experts in like happiness and I don't know, all these different experts in various forms of health. And especially like the mindset and like mm, psych psychological ones whenever the people are interviewing them and they're like so what's your like number one tip for happiness they're like well all of my tips you're gonna think that they're not like none of them are like mind-blowing because there are things that you know you should do but they're hard to do mm-hmm. and I think that the reason they're hard to do comes back to what we talk about in this episode with Rana is that <laughs> your body starts to crave the things and you're just like stuck in this like cycle of being depleted and so you yeah. stop craving the things that are good for you. And I, I think society is built in a way today that is not optimal for human happiness or, I don't know, no. just like life. Like we're meant to be in nature, in small communities. We're not supposed to be connected with millions of people at any time of the day living in like concrete jungles. So I think that's like a big root of it too. I just, what was I listening to? Oh, Atomic Habits, um, amazing book. And Mm -hmm. he talks about how, which makes so much sense. Our brain, like the functionality and evolution of the human brain has lasted a lot longer than like technology and like information spread and stuff like that. And our brain has not evolved to like live in this society. And he Mm -hmm. talks about how our brain literally like, it makes sense. We like basically have a caveman brain that just like wants immediate reward. And so we're mm-hmm. giving it all these things that give it immediate reward. And it doesn't think about long-term, like it can't prioritize long-term benefits as much as it prioritizes short-term benefits, which is why we like get obsessed and addicted to watching TV and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And it's really weird because we're like actually doing horrible things for ourselves. <laughs> but yeah, I am reading Love People Use Things, which is like an overall lifestyle minimalism book. And one of its points was talking about the difference between happiness and pleasure and that a lot of people think that happiness is pleasure, but actually they're completely opposite things and pleasure is like short term, feels good in the moment sort of thing where happiness is doing the thing that's going to make you happy in the long run. Happiness is not like a vacation to the Bahamas. Happiness is making a salad for yourself every day for lunch or taking yourself on a walk every day at two or five, like being outside, forcing yourself to do these things that are good for you. That's happiness, creating a life that is in line with your long-term goals. But people kind of like confuse the two things and think they're the same, but they're actually pretty opposite. I thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah, I feel like happiness, and I've found this in my break from drinking, comes so much from like peace Mm -hmm. and like having a daily routine and the peace that comes with that. And I feel like we're so obsessed with like highs and like being like, oh, let's chase like high energy events, like high effort things, like all of those things are high reward. But I feel like general happiness really comes from like, 
a more flat line and like probably lower mm-hmm. than like what you would think, but it's like just the evenness of it all is so yeah. much happier. A lot of people who have like trauma, which is everyone has some form of their own little bit of childhood <laughs> trauma, like love the highs and lows. And so it's people think that happiness can feel boring because it's stable. And I think that's mm-hmm. why some people struggle with long term relationships and stuff because like stable can feel boring, but stable is also like the most safe and secure thing (laughs) and peaceful thing you could have is like stability. Yeah. It's taken for granted, I think. Well, he made a great segue earlier and I kept going, but (laughs) I think this all ties into what we talk about with Rana. And I think there's a big, um, she talks about balance a lot Mm -hmm. and I feel like that is so much more important. It's like you can want to do those things that are highs, but like finding your balance and spending more of the time balanced than out of balance is like the main key. Mm -hmm. But I'm so excited to launch this episode. I think both of us is like this, this is like what the second episode we recorded (laughs) and we both were like left the call and called each other. And we were like, that was amazing. We're having her back on. Like, we already have plans. She was so fun and cool to talk to. I was really nervous because it was only our second recording and I don't didn't know her at all, so I didn't know what to expect. But she is so calming and everything that came out of her mouth, I was like, Yes, are you like are you in my brain? <laughs> like, how do you know all of this? She just felt like some like wise, I don't know, like parent or sister kind of being. And I was like, I want to sign up for her, like coaching. I want to visit her when we're in Seattle. When I visit you in Seattle, like I, I love her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, I'm obsessed with her. So, if you didn't read the bio, <laughs> um, to, in the episode that we're talking about, we interview Ranam Jodi, and I met her through work at Microsoft, and. Um, we worked together for about a year and then she just left to study Ayurvedic wellness and is now becoming an Ayurvedic coach. And so we talked to her and I mean, Autumn is so right. She's so engaging. I've just been absolutely like in love with her. Basically. She was like my work idol, like, like the work equivalent of like a rush crush. (laughs) That's how I felt. And I just, she knows I like, we had one-on-ones every week and it was like the best time. And then we do happy hours. And like every time we did a happy hour, it'd be like three hours because it was the same thing. I was just like, you are in my brain. I love talking <laughs> to you. You're so engaging and she's so insightful, but like mm-hmm. in a very humble and real honest way. So I, she was like, came to my mind first when Autumn and I started talking about doing a podcast. I was like, we have to talk to her. And I mean, even going in, knowing like I had high expectations because I knew her well. I feel like she's still exceeded those expectations. <laughs> and the conversation really was amazing. We talk about her time at Microsoft, like how she went through Microsoft. She skyrocketed through the company. So she talks about kind of how she did that, but also like the pitfalls that come along with that journey um, and her anxiety and how she set boundaries, things like that. And then we go into kind of more her Ayurvedic wellness thing, um, which is both things were equally fascinating. We were both like hanging on every mm-hmm. word. So 
Yeah, I can't wait to talk to her again. Everything I this woman needs to have her own book, her own TED talk, her own podcast, her own everything, and I will consume everything she puts in the world religiously. <laughs> because the way she speaks is like she kind of reminds me, like, I don't know, of just someone who's so eloquent in a similar way to like Glennon Doyle. Like they're so different, their energies, yeah. but the way they can just word something so perfectly i feel like they Mm -hmm. remind me of each other in that way but i feel like we got lucky i'm like i feel like we got her when she's still accessible and she's gonna go do this ayurvedic thing and start making content and absolutely skyrocket and we'll be able to like ride her coattails like through this (laughs) interview (laughs) but does she want that because she was like i just want a small community focused lifestyle like does she even I don't even know if she I wants feel like all of that. That is true. She does love her like park bench analogy that she gets into. Mm-hmm. But I I could just see her like doing something like writing a book. Like I feel like Glennon Doyle didn't want that. And it still happened to her because of the same thing. It's like you you just hang on to every single word she says that like if she writes a book, I'm going to buy it. And I'm going to yeah. tell every single person I know to buy it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a wonderful wonderful episode what are your what were your like favorite overall things that we touched on everything I mean today I was re-listening to it because we wanted to find like different sections to post on socials and like little sound bites and my notes are literally like one minute 10 seconds this quote and then it's like two minutes 10 seconds it's like every single thing that she says is insightful and and like powerful I feel like my most favorite things, however, were her talking about gut feeling versus anxiety because Mm -hmm. that's something that I really struggle with. But I still struggle with it, but I do think every time I have like a made-up gut feeling, I tell myself like, does this feel open? And if it doesn't, which it never does, (laughs) then I know that it's anxiety and I just try to breathe through it or get through it. So that was probably – my most favorite thing that we talked about. Yeah. I think for me, listening to her career journey is so, Mm -hmm. and I, I knew a lot of it, but just being able to like dig in and ask her those questions, because I mean, everyone at work is obsessed with her. Like, I'm not kidding when I say she absolutely killed it at Microsoft. And I've just, I mean, I love her from personal experience, but any person that you talk to that knows her is like, she's amazing. Like, I absolutely love her. I'm like, fuck yeah, that we work together because I know that she'll always like write me a reference. And I'm like, that goes so far. And so with that hearing, like, I mean, she's obviously did amazing, but like hearing also the side that is like how she set boundaries and how she wishes she set more boundaries and stuff like that was just so insightful for me and helpful. I also think that part of the reason you and I are obsessed with this episode is that it really does like we touch on like all of the themes that we wanted to touch on in this podcast, like in the Mm -hmm. whole series of the podcast. Like I think because we have both her career journey, her feeling stuck and her like kind of the figuring it out phase. And then also the next journey, figuring out like looking ahead phase Mm -hmm it really gets to like every single thing that we want to cover throughout this podcast, like from start to finish. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think, 
And also every topic that we touched on, I think we could talk to her for five hours about every single topic. Like she has such like a wealth of knowledge and I can't wait to have her back on. Today, we are talking to Rana Amjadi. She worked in various marketing roles at Microsoft, working on everything from operations management at Microsoft Office to doing PR work for the Microsoft Research Org, and absolutely killed it at each and every job along the way. Eventually, her incredible career at Microsoft came to a pause, and she took a leap into the entrepreneurial world, studying Ayurvedic nutrition and building her own holistic consulting practice. I have learned so much from Rana. And I'm thrilled to have her on the show so she can share her never-ending wealth of knowledge with our listeners. Thank you so much for being on the show. We're super happy to have you. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I'm excited. I know. It's going to be so fun. Um, So I would love to just like literally go all the way back to the beginning and talk about how you transitioned out of college and into the corporate world and just how that went for you. Like I know you kicked it off right at Microsoft. So how did that all go? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll start with the fact that like no one really tells you how challenging that transition is going to be, or just how hard your the twenties decade actually is. Or like, oh, it's your twenties, and like they're treating you. It's like the same energy as like college. It's like free and fun, and like you have a world of possibilities in in front of you if if you have that kind of privilege, um, wh- which is all true. But it's also like really, really challenging because you come out of college and then suddenly you have to learn how to integrate that freedom of youth that you just spent four years kind of like loving up on. And then suddenly mixing that with like the realities of adulthood and setting the foundation for your life, whether that's like financial security or career path, relationships, how are you going to build community in the place that you're in? And that's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and it comes with a lot of loss, like a lot of loss of identity, a lot of loss of relationships, but also a lot of gains that I think now that I'm in my 30s, I can look back on that transition and, and see all the gifts that it was giving me. But when I was in it, it was not so smooth. Um, so my focus when I first came out of college, yeah, I went straight to Microsoft. I got the job senior year, kind of had the summer to chill, and then I moved out to Seattle And I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Like I was a sociology major at school. I knew somewhere in the realm of like marketing and communications was right for me just because I kept gravitating towards that kind of stuff. And I like wasn't an engineer and I crushed my parents' dream and I wasn't going to become a doctor. (laughs) Sorry, mom and dad. Uh, (laughs) So I was like, okay, like marketing business, whatever. And that first year for me was just more so of learning what it is I didn't want to do. I had joined this communications team that was in a like security, privacy, reliability organization within Microsoft. It wasn't related to any product or any consumer-facing thing. It was like core security engineering. And that first year, I did a bunch of different roles, and I kind of ended up in this operations track where I was doing business management. And, and it was, in my mind, it felt like a glorified administrative task, but it was really important because I got to learn how they ran their business. But at the end of that year, I just realized, like, I don't want to be in operations. I'm good at it, but just because I'm good at it doesn't mean I should 
do it. It didn't make me happy. It didn't get me excited to go to work in the morning. And I wanted to step closer to the product, the things that people were actually experiencing from Microsoft, that they associated Microsoft with, that felt a little bit more tangible than some security policy, which is like incredibly important for the world and like critical, but I had no direct relation to it. And so that first year was just a lot of like trial and error and just seeing like what felt good and what didn't and try to kind of move myself closer and closer to the things that actually felt good to me. And then I had a panic attack. (laughs) (laughs) And I've learned over my 20s that my gut is actually in my chest and it is really communicative. And if I ignore it for extended periods of time, eventually it's just going to start shouting at me and it's going to throw me into a full on anxiety spiral panic attack. And I had been trudging through that first year, that first job at Microsoft, like really unhappy, didn't like the culture, didn't like what I was doing. I knew that I didn't want to be in operations and I wanted to be closer to the product, but like we had 500 reorgs and half the team got laid off. And I was just like, oh man, I'm just, I need to hold on to this. This is security. At least I have a job, right? Mm -hmm. And I ignored and I ignored and I ignored. And then I went to go visit my sister in San Francisco and I had a full on panic attack on her couch just by thinking about having to answer a couple of emails. And that's when I realized that like, I was really in a spot that wasn't healthy for me, that I had to switch and get out. And that if I kept allowing my career and my path and this foundation of my life to be directed by others or be at the whim of like different corporate fluctuations, then I was going to end up in a, in a space, in a role, in a career that I never wanted in the first place. And so that's where I decided, okay, like it's time to, to take my career into my own hands. And I started to actively look for roles within the company. And, you know, I think at that time I was realistic. Like I wasn't going to be able to jump from operations role in obscure communications team to a product marketer working on like the hottest consumer app at the time. Like that's not how that was going to work for me. So I said, okay, it's more of a priority for me to get myself into the space that's like consumer facing, that's actually closer to what people care about, culture, community, et cetera. And I'll keep my operations gig just to get me there. And so I I hopped over and I did an operations role in the office marketing team for about a year. And that was a role that, again, I, I didn't love being in operations. I knew it wasn't the end game, but it gave me something that I couldn't deny. And that was learning the business. Like I was on a chief of staffing team. I got to see how a VP manages an entire marketing org of several hundred people. And I was a fly on the wall in a bunch of leadership conversations. And that to me was worth it. That was value add that I wasn't going to get being a year two product marketer pushing some random meaningless features. Like that was up level kind of shit. And sure, I wasn't happy day to day, but I knew that it was going to be good for me in the long run. And so I stayed. And um, after a while, I was paying attention to the different leaders who were sitting around the table and watching what questions they were asking. Like when someone come up to them and like present something about the business, a new marketing plan, a new product offering, whatever, 
each leader sitting around the table had a different role to play, had different questions that they're going to ask, had different things that they're going to push on. And I kept finding myself really interested and gravitating towards our brand director and kind of the questions that he was asking about the design and the value proposition. And again, for me, similar to why I wanted to work more on the product side of the house, he was the person who was making sure that we were showing up in culture in the right ways. What do we actually mean to people? What do we mean to culture? What do we mean when we say we are Microsoft when we're XYZ product? And I found that really intriguing. And, you know, this was a moment again where I was like, okay, I'm in a great spot by everyone else's standards. I have proximity and visibility. I'm doing a role that people would be super interested in, but it's not pulling at my heartstrings. You know, it's not getting me excited. That thing is getting me excited. So I should go there. And I had a very frank conversation with my manager and uh, I was like, listen, love you. It's been great, but I want to be that. Like, how do I go be that? And she's like, okay, well, there's not really, he doesn't have any direct reports right now, but like, why don't you, let's set up coffee chats with him, just get a sense of what he does. And like, you know, maybe one day. And then by chance, like three months later, they had decided that they were going to build an internal creative agency within the organization. And they needed someone who knew operations and knew how to create processes and knew how to scale these types of things. And they pretty much just placed me from one team to the other. And again, I wasn't doing the brand work. I wasn't going to be a brand strategist. I was still doing operations, but I was inching myself closer and closer and closer to the space I wanted to be in. Um, then the most pivotal transition happened in my career. And we as a creative studio were working on the launch of this new product that was a chat and meeting thing that would create all these different spaces for people to come together. And we're not really sure what we're naming it yet, but why don't you guys play around with it and, and help us build a, a campaign for its launch? And my creative studio team was like family to me. They're super cool. You know, like you know, we hang out with like artists and copywriters and designers are like crazy and quirky and really fun. So we started using the product and this thing actually captured our spirit. And I was like, you know what? Here's something that I think is actually going to matter to culture, has a play with community. And like, again, these are the things that I really value. And it was teams. We were launching teams and I got to know the product uh, manager leader. And I was just like, never done product marketing, but it was always what I intended to do. Take a chance on me. And she did. So that led to me demoing with our CEO for, you know, every major conference that we had for about three years straight, which was something I never thought that I would be able to do in a corporate setting. Like I'm a high school musical drama nerd thespian, but you know, you grow up and your parents like whack that desire out of you. And they're like, you're not going to be an actress. Like you're either going to become a doctor or a lawyer. And if you're not going to become a doctor or lawyer, you better go work for like a big, massive corporation like Microsoft. And, you know, being the dutiful Persian daughter that I am, I, I obliged. Um, so I put that behind me and then here I am on stage in front of 20,000 people live audience. Like I never thought that would happen before. And it was the best experience of my life. And it's because I followed exactly what interests me, what was aligned with my values and my morals, things that I actually wanted to do as an individual, like be involved in culture and community. And like, sure, it means something else when you're in a corporate setting, but 
you can still find pockets of those things that at least bring you joy. And I think um, when we move through like a transition out of college and start working, I think there's a lot of different things that we have to balance at the same time. It's like you do the things that are secure, that help you build a literal foundation for your life, whether that's financial security, job security, whatever it is. Then you do the things that people around you, whether it's your friends, your parents, your coworkers, your managers, tell you are the things that are good for you in your career, the high visibility jobs, the things that are working on highly resourced business areas, et cetera. And I think those two things, they're super important, but they carry so much weight that we forget the third bucket, that things that bring us joy, things that make us happy, things that fill us up with energy are just as important because that's the stuff that's going to sustain you throughout your life. And sure, I can say, you know, I find a lot of joy when I'm sitting on a park bench by myself, listening to music, drinking coffee and people watching. That's not a job. (laughs) I wish it was. I would love for that to be a job. It's not a job, but I should ignore that because that's data. And those are signals that I can be reading to say, okay, what are the qualities of that moment? that bring me joy and fill me with gratitude? Well, I am observing people. I love to be an observation of others. I think it's super fun and super exciting. I love the human experience. I just want to know more about it. I feel like I'm a part of community. I get to sit there and smile at people and have conversations with random people as they walk by with their dogs. I have autonomy and full agency in that moment. I'm by myself. I'm not dealing with like other people's priorities or whatever. I'm connected with nature. I feel very centered and grounded in that natural external world. And so when I stop thinking about like the absolute of like, oh, I'm happy doing X, Y, Z and start thinking about the qualities of X, Y, Z, then I can go pattern match. Then I can go find jobs. I can go find relationships. I can go find environments that help me cultivate some of those qualities in my life. And that for me, at least, that has always led to more success, more productivity, more fulfillment and all the things that I do. Wow, (laughs) that is amazing. (laughs) I have always thought about like, how do I figure out what the fuck makes me happy? And I never thought about why those things make me happy or like what the qualities of those moments are that make me happy. Is this something that you realized at this point in your career or is it something that you say like looking back on it now? Yeah, so I think when I was in the moment, like I think this, my team's role was 2017 to 20 late 2019 um so that was 26 to 27 beyond 28 i was late 20s Uh, (laughs) math is not happening in my head (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um i think in that moment i had enough of those transitions from that first year panic attack into the operations role, from the operations role, into the brand role, from the brand role into teams. I had done enough of those. And keep in mind, panic attacks came at all transition moments. Like, even though I was happier than that first panic attack, it was still my gut had a moment where I was like, okay, now it's time to talk to your manager. I had practiced following my joy, as if you want to put it that way, enough to know that that at least was the pathway that was most productive for me because it landed me in a role where I 
sat in a makeup chair next to the CEO like every other month chit-chatting about the performance we were about to do together. And like, not a performance. It was a keynote, but in my head, it, it, was, was, a it was a performance. <laughs> like, who's, like, who's going to go sit next to the CEO and not ask him stupid questions? And so, so they put me there. So it was just, hey, how are you doing? Good. You excited? Great. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> dying on the inside. Dying. Okay. dying. Great. Great human being. Wonderful person. Um, so I, I think I had practice enough of that to know that, okay, I have to follow joy, excitement, energy, these things, because they're going to serve me in the long run. The qualities component has kind of come later on. I think in the moment I was more thinking about values, like morals and values, the values of really wanting to be a part of culture and community. And I'll get to my third transition or my last transition at Microsoft, the, the ritual of storytelling. I think I started to get familiarity then. And I, and I would say when you're thinking about your 20s, again, that notion of setting the foundation of your life, um, getting clear on like what's important to you and what you value is just a really, really good exercise. Like that's a good use of your time to use your 20s to really feel into like what matters to you, what makes you happy, what brings you joy, what are things that you value and what are things that you don't. Um, and even if you can't necessarily apply them immediately, go find that job that's aligned with your values or go find that whatever, at least do the work to, to think about it and be super reflective about it. And, and if you feel like it's hard for you to create space for yourself to do that, then go find facilitators, go work with a therapist, go work with a life coach. Like that I think is, is a useful investment of your time. I think another thing, and I, I'm pretty sure you shared this with me like once upon a time, <laughs> but is understanding not only your values, but like the literal prioritization of your values. And so there's like maybe 10 things I want out of a job. Realistically, where I am in my career, I can get three of those. For me, people is so important. So like, I will not be able to work on a team if I don't like the people around me. And I know for some people, like you mentioned earlier, it's like business results and driven so much by like being in the largest share part of the company or something like that. And I just, to me, that's like not in my top priorities. I think it's cool, but like, that's just not what brings me joy. And I just think that that you've taught me and you've shown so well just throughout your career, when you're talking about kind of moving inching closer, it's like checking off a couple more of that list, but knowing the order, like, what do you want to focus on? And focus on that because you unfortunately at our age like you can't focus on everything <laughs> no and you can't you can't focus on anything at, uh, on everything at any age let's be clear like there are always trade-offs that you're going to have to make even when you're running your own business like there's no such thing as having full control on everything stacked up and if people tell you otherwise they're straight up lying <laughs> uh, <laughs> um i think the things that you and i talked about jordan were were like you know as i was shifting roles it was always really cognizant of like the three kind of parameters of a role or conditions of a role that were important to me at any given time. One was the people, like who am I surrounding myself with? Are they people that I enjoy spending time with? Do I respect them? Do I value their opinion? Do I think that they'll take shared accountability for my growth as I am taking accountability for my own growth? That one's really important, especially as you get into your later 20s. Like, y'all are rock stars. You're doing great at your jobs. It's easy for people to like let go and let you run and manage. And it's awesome. You want that autonomy, but then it, 
if they don't kind of step back in and help dig in with you and really help you go onto that next level, you can kind of be coasting at the same space for a while. So like shared accountability is always really important. The second one is the function of my job. Like literally, what am I doing day in, day out? Am I sending emails? Am I building PowerPoint decks? Am I on Excel? God, heavens no. Am I (laughs) not... Not for me. Literally, like think about functionally. What are you doing? Are you presenting in front of people? Like, and is that something that gives you as much energy back as you put into it? And then the third one was focus area. What am I going to be required to think about day in and day out? What is someone going to expect me to be an expert in? And is that knowledge I want to have in my head? Is that something that I actually want to immerse myself in? And as Jordan mentioned, like throughout the transitions, like one of those, two of those three would have to take priority. And for me, it was people always, and then function and focus kind of flipped depending on where I was and where I was coming out of. And this is a good, this is a good transition, I think, to what was my final transition at Microsoft. Um, So I was coming off of Teams Excellence. It was a wonderful ride lots of visibility, really great growth and development. I had an amazing, amazing manager who just like skyrocketed my career. You know, the world was my oyster. And I got approached by our VP at the time um, to see if I wanted to apply to become his chief of staff. And again, this was a role that like everyone around me was like, oh my God, this is an amazing opportunity. The type of visibility that you have, you'll see the business end to end. And it sounded really appealing. Like this was a guy that I I really, really respected. He was incredibly smart. We had had some rapport over the last couple of years working on teams together. And I was between that and a a communications role with the team who managed all the presentations and and keynote storytelling that I was a part of. And I knew them well, and I had a lot of interest in that role. It would be doing quantum computing communications, which I thought was super cool. But, you know, the the culture within the company was like, well, communications is more of a service-based role. When you're a product marketer, you're running the business, you're leading the business, you own the strategy. That's awesome. And you have strategy around comms, but you're never really going to have the full say, essentially. And so I was like, okay, I was talking around, it was like a couple of weeks. I was like, okay, let me do this. I'm going to pretend, I'm going to do a little mental exercise. I'm going to text a couple of my friends and my family and say, I'm going to go take that chief of staff role and just see how it feels. Like just try it on, see how it feels. Three hours later, I was having a panic attack. And I hadn't even actually applied or done anything for that role. It was a pretend, let's try it on for size scenario. And my body screamed at me, absolutely not. Like, do not do this. And I listened. And I, and I think what my body was telling me at the time was, this is a step towards becoming a director, a VP, or whatever at Microsoft. Do you want that? Do you want that job or do you want to be that brand's leader around the table who's thinking about culture and community and what had come off of doing teams doing specifically through the lens of the ritual of storytelling? What is core to my being as a Persian person? We tell stories left, right, and center. Our whole life is oral storytelling. Do you want to be a VP of product or do you want to be the best damn storyteller? I was like, 
my body's telling me I want to be the best damn storyteller. And that was taking a, you know, not a step backwards, but maybe slowing down the rate of acceleration in my career for something that I knew was going to bring me more joy. And I did it. And it was the best decision I ever made. And I had an incredible manager and I got to work with like the world's greatest quantum physicists and researchers and just learn about the most incredible things. And like, again, that focus area, I was just immersed in like the coolest topics. Functionally, I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. A lot of writing, a lot of storytelling, and I had amazing people around me. And I think, you know, it's hard. It's hard to make those decisions that go against what everyone else is telling you is going to be good for you in your career. And were there moments where I was like, did I, did I make the right call? Of course, of course. But I think, you know, the reality is your life, including your career is only yours to live and to manage. And if it doesn't work for you, if it doesn't make you happy, if it brings you stress, if it tightens your chest and gives you panic attacks, you really don't do it because these are signals and data from your body and your system saying, this does not work for me. It should feel easy. There should be a sense of flow. There should be a sense of joy, at least, at least if not joy, then neutral emotion, you know, how, how wonderful mm-hmm. to have no emotion at work. What a beautiful gift that is. That's yeah. totally fine too. But if there's an intensity of negative emotion, stress, anger, all these things, fuck it and leave it, dude. Like you don't need to have that. And I think mm-hmm. that was one of the biggest challenges of your 20s is just like, do I have the right to even make that decision at this stage of my life? I thought that decision, following my passions and my joy comes later when I'm established, when I have those foundations, when I've made all the money I need to make and I can go retire to be the book shopkeeper that I've always wanted to be. (laughs) You know, that's one way of doing it. I think it's a much more miserable way of doing it. I think you can Mm -hmm. find security and stability and foundation setting while also following things that make you feel happy and at ease. I don't think those two things are, you know, mutually exclusive. Asterisk. That's a statement that comes with a lot of privilege, right? Like I have the privilege of that choice and a lot Mm -hmm. of people don't. But if you have the privilege of that choice, why are you making yourself miserable? You don't need to do that job. Let someone else take it. There's something you said that I'd love for you to just go into a bit more detail because I think it's so important and not talked about enough is that notion of like, do I have the right? And Mm. I would love for you to kind of talk about like knowing your worth and knowing like what 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 is your right as an early in career employee where do you bring value and like what is your strength i guess man that's a good question and something that i struggled with a lot i struggled with uh do i have a right what's my place how dare i thing especially when i was doing a lot of the ceo demos you know like very visible young brown millennial woman who was working on the product and product marketing. Right. But I wasn't the engineer. I wasn't the person building the thing and I'm sitting up there and and presenting it to the world. And, you know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome that comes in and there's a lot of (laughs) negative talk that enters your mind or like, well, if I wasn't a woman, if I wasn't Brown, would I be having these opportunities in the first place? And, you know, 
I think there's there's space for a lot of things to be true in that statement. Knowing all the things that you know now, yeah, and looking back, where do you wish that you set harder boundaries? Where do you wish that you could tell yourself like you fucking deserve this, like you deserve to say no or whatever it is? Like, yeah, how did you do that, or how could you have done that? You know, I think I struggled with that a lot, a lot, a lot. I'm just now, like after two years of therapy and, you know, taking a six-week mental health sabbatical and quitting my job and starting my own business, am I coming into comfort with, you know, setting boundaries and standing firmly in my own my own worth and value? So like, it's a process. It's definitely a process. I think for me, you know, one thing that helped me was having managers who saw that worth, who really saw that in me and were lifting me up and reminding me of those things when I couldn't see them myself. And that's that's what I say when, when you're looking for people to surround yourself with, that shared accountability in your growth is really important because you can have an awesome manager who knows everything about the business and is super nice and fun, but it, unless they're going to kind of really dig in with you as a coach, you know, it's going to be hard to find those moments. So I think things that worked for me was just surrounding myself with people who were lifting me up and who were telling me those things. Um, I wish I would have set more boundaries earlier on when it came to my time and my emotion. You know, I think time at a place like Microsoft or in big, you know, corporate America that tends to skew its schedule towards uh, parents or people with children I think if you looked at my timesheet, was I working above and beyond a nine to five or an eight to six every single day on average? No. And it seemed balanced. I think there are definitely times where I was responding to emails or doing things late at night or on weekends when I, I really didn't have to, but it ebbs and flows. Those things happen. I think the more important boundary I needed to set was my emotional boundary. And this is something that is really stems from my primary role in life all throughout, you know, my young adulthood, even till now, is this position of being the dutiful Persian daughter. I do everything to please the elders, right? And that just, that identity is, you know, develops from my parents and was just completely projected onto the corporate world and the elders and the managers around me. And that meant that I was overextending myself and signing up for things that were not my job description, that I was not getting paid to do, or trying to build a sense of community and care by offering to help others that I knew were stressed out. And don't get me wrong, these are qualities that actually helped me be successful in, in the corporate setting. You know, you want to help out, especially if you, you know, care about your teammates. It's, it's all about being a good team, but I would take it too far. I would, before someone even asked for help, I would be offering it. And then I'm a perfectionist on top of that. So it's not like I'm just going to help 70% and then pass it over. I'm doing the whole damn thing, like 100% all the way and creating a program for them to scale it afterwards. Like, and that's the kind of stuff that I think I was equating my worth in the workplace with something that was very ego-driven. It was the validation of, you're so smart, you're so kind, you're so nice, you're such a good girl. You know, like it was just that. It wasn't actually my skill sets, my strategic mind, what I brought to the table. 
And I think if I were to do it again, I would just create a little bit more emotional distance between myself and that space and set some of those boundaries so I'm not overextending myself all the time. Yeah, definitely. I think I totally relate to all of that. For me at Amazon, I worked there for a year and a half and Mm -hmm. I was in an operations role as well. And it was not something that I was passionate about, but I was good at it. And there was a point where a lot of people on my team left and I was doing everyone's job and training people and uh, we weren't performing very well because of that. And we had some kind of senior leadership come in and one of them made me cry, pushed me to a point where he made me cry literally at work. And I started having a panic attack and crying to my boss. And I was like, this can be a moment for me to go and stand up for myself or this can be a moment where he thinks that's okay to talk to me like that or talk to anyone like that. So I go outside and I talk to him and I'm like, that wasn't cool. I don't know why you think that you were able to talk to me that way. And he was like, well, that's how my bosses always talk to me. That's what I, that's what I, was, that's what I was taught and that's how I learned. That's what, that's what got me to where I am now. And I was like, okay, but you are you and that's not fair to me. And I feel like I would have never learned that had I not been pushed to the brink. I think it would have probably taken me a lot of years of overextending myself because I'm the same way. You say jump. I say how high. I want I want to do it. I want to be good. I want to be the best. But I, I'm i so thankful that Amazon taught me that because now in my new role, I would never. I'm not going to work until 7 p.m. just because someone like else couldn't. I mean, I don't know. I want to help. I want to help and be a helpful person still. But I think I'm much better at drawing the boundaries. And I wish that that was something that was taught to us at a younger age. I don't, I don't think that anyone really talks about it enough. And I think it's really hard in the corporate world to learn how to draw those boundaries for yourself. Totally. And I mean, incredible that you stood up to him and good on you. And I, I, his answer, like I was traumatized at work and thus (laughs) I want to try like what people like, that's such a great example of how, I mean, bro culture and like, that's how the dominant power dynamic stays because nothing changes. And like in that situation, there was a power dynamic and it was the same power dynamic that he was frustrated was then pushed onto you. Even like he was the, he had the opportunity to stop and he just continued it. And I think that's what, what can often make a space feel unsafe for women, for minority groups, because the dominant people in power don't make those changes when they see the opportunity to make those changes. And I think that's like a perfect example of like, it's kind of the same, like it's like hazing and like, I was just going to say that (laughs) (laughs) the same concept of like frat hazing and how that still is around. (laughs) And I'm like, well, how, how have we not evolved beyond this? It becomes so ingrained, like it's culture and culture is identity and people are really afraid of letting go of elements of their identity even if they're not serving them because it's a sense of community it's a sense of belonging and it can be it shows up in really weird ways like boys still sign up to get haze when they join a fraternity mm-hmm. but but it creates this camaraderie that they love and so like in the in the workplace you know that's a it's another example of that. And I think it's it's really hard to ask people to examine their identity, see what isn't working, see what might be harmful to others and and let go of it. Like that's a much harder process than just perpetuating the same cycle. And I think what you said earlier around like 
you know, I want to help. I want to be nice, but setting the boundaries, I think I, I like to think about these things from a, from a place of a notion of like, what is your true state and center of balance, right? Like you can be someone who has their arms and their legs outstretched and, and, you know, helping people everywhere. And like, you're holding your body like this. And technically I'm, if I'm standing on one foot, I'm balancing. It's not that I'm not balancing, but if I keep doing this after a while, my ankle's going to weaken, it's going to get sore. Something's going to break. My arms, my muscles are going to contort and I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. Right? So you can do this. You can go help someone for a little bit, but it's just about about bringing yourself back to center. Don't let it become the thing that you hold forever or the pattern that becomes ingrained. You can have those moments, but just don't let them sit, you know, like bring yourself back. And so if you have a moment where a coworker is really stressed out or you're working towards an event and it requires that you work late at night and on the weekends, that's fine. These things happen. Bring yourself back every single time. Yeah. I'm wondering in terms of balance, how did you feel like when you entered the corporate world, how did you learn how to balance like hobbies and fun and friends and pursuing joy outside of work? When you're talking about, you know, having these big transitional moments in your career and having panic attacks at each phase, do you feel like you were living a a happy and intentional life outside of work? Or were you like creating that for yourself? Or do you think that you're really consumed by, you know, trying to just climb up the corporate ladder and like be the best in your career? Or was it both? I don't know. I would love to hear more about outside of your career in that time Um, too. It's a good question. I, I mean, it ebbs and flows. And I think for me, the thing that I came out of college into, you know, my twenties really wanting to keep as a priority was my social network. Like I am someone who needs a lot of strong social ties, a sense of community. And I moved across the country and the complete polar opposite corner from where my family and all my friends were. And so I knew going in that like I had to put my energy up front and building my own sense of family out here. And I think I've, I've done a pretty good job of, of keeping that consistent, you know, throughout my twenties, the things that wavered over those couple of eight years uh, working in, in my corporate gig were the things that were um, healthy for me. You know, like social life is healthy for me. Community is healthy for me. Okay, let's put that aside though. But the things like moving my body, um, being active, being mobile, um, like doing things that put my mind at ease, meditation, yoga, whatever, all the good stuff that is good for me. Those are the things, dance, those were the things that I completely abandoned because I didn't have space. I didn't have space <laughs> to cultivate this robust, rich, fulfilling family tie like social life and also kick ass at my job. And that was a myth. I did have time because I could have set better boundaries. I could have closed a laptop. I could have not watched the like millions of hours of content that I've watched in the last eight years and instead redirected that time towards, you know, doing 20 minutes of yoga. I could have done those things. But for me, it was that emotional weight that kept me from Mm -hmm. doing that. And I think this again, just comes back to like 
I was forgetting the things that actually brought me joy. I was doing a lot of numbing in those eight years, like decompressing and numbing and just turn my brain off. And I think the, the challenge is, you know, especially now in this remote work thing, our entire lives have shrunken into our brains and into our laptop screens. If you're working as an information worker, which is like you're on a laptop day in a day, right? Everything, your entire experience is this little square. And that is exhausting. It's not physically exhausting, but it's like soul level exhausting. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you just want to decompress, right? You want to de-stress, whatever. The problem is the way that we're built up to decompress and de-stress is actually giving us more of that same thing. It's more mental. It's like, I'm going to scroll on my phone. I'm going to watch Netflix for eight hours. That's actually what we shouldn't be doing because you're adding fire on top of fire, right? What I needed to be doing in those eight years is counterbalancing that. If I am spending all day in my mind with my wrist as the only active thing, the minute I'm off that moment, I need to use the entirety of my body. And not from a perspective of, let me go sign up for those like insane fitness classes or like do something to look hot and lose weight. But like, no, no, no. Like, let me just give my body and my mind and my spirit the things that I've been depriving it all day. Let my mind at rest, my eyes at rest and my body active. Let me go for a walk. Let me go friggin' dance like a weirdo around my house. And the problem is when you're in an imbalanced state, when you do so much of one thing, then it's self-perpetuating. Then you start to crave the thing that is actually bad for you. And that's what eight years of corporate life was for me. I was mm-hmm. so imbalanced in this sedentary, mind-anxious mode that I th- my form of rest and relaxation was actually just binging more of that imbalanced state. And it took me taking those six weeks off, doing that mental health leave, completely removing myself from the situation for my body to kind of resettle. And then for me to actually like understand intuitively what it is that I need for myself. So now I know like if I'm going to be working on my laptop all day long and I start to feel weird or low or anxious, my body actually tells me go move. It's not telling me go sit down on the couch and watch Netflix anymore because I've cleared that shit out of it. (laughs) I feel like it's really, I think a lot of people are stuck in that phase that you're talking about. And I'm recently like learning how to get out of it. (laughs) I think that it's so easy. You think that after, you know, your eight hours of working, 10 hours of working, that you're so exhausted. The only thing that you have energy for is to turn on the TV. But realistically, sitting on the couch and the TV on is actually just draining you even more. And if you just took yourself outside or moved your body a little bit, you'd probably feel a lot better. And I, I always wonder, I don't, I don't know if anyone has the answer for this on this call, but like, why is it harder to bring yourself to go for the walk? Why is it harder to do the yoga or the meditation? Like I don't I don't understand why it's hard for me to crave these things. I mean, I think because you are you've been sitting in this state for so long, it's self-perpetuating, right? Mm-hmm. Like your body doesn't know that it needs to crave the other thing until you start doing it. That's why people say when you start a new eating habit or a workout plan, like stick with it for at least 30 days, because then after that, your body will become a participant in, mm-hmm. in keeping that behavior. It'll trigger the things that, you know, 
you know, if you're, let's say for instance, like you're sleeping really poorly, practice, you know, doing a intentional wind down routine and sleeping at the hour that you want to sleep at, keep at it for a month. Eventually you're going to Pavlov dog your body into like giving you sleepy hormones at that time that you want to sleep. You just have to stick with it. And, but that's really hard. And I think we're in this culture right now where like anything, especially in the health and wellness space comes with such a horrible weight of like self-esteem and like body image issues, especially, I don't know, I'm not going to speak on your behalf, but like for me, like I would go from doing nothing to then think I needed to be healthier and more fit and more active and skinnier and then signing up for like everything and buying like a three-month plan at a gym and binging that, going so hard. And then one little inconvenience I had a later meeting that day or I had to travel somewhere and then I would completely drop the routine. And it's because, you know, to go back to our earlier conversation, it wasn't coming from a place of joy for me. It was obligation. It was stress. It was, you know, negative self-talk and insecurity and like nothing that forces me to face all of those negative emotions is going to keep me motivated to keep doing it. And, and that's a lot of work to undo. And what I'm trying to go for now is less about those things, less about trying to create the perfect routine around the ways that I am healthier or decompress after work, but just really feeling into each and every day. What did my day look like today? What was the type of energy that I was surrounding myself in? What is the what, what I've been filling my time with? Have I been sedentary? Have I been in my head a lot? Have I you know, whatever it is, take stock. And then know that to keep yourself in balance, it's like a seesaw. You got to do the opposite. What are you going to put on the other end of the seesaw to bring you back to center for that day? What do you feel is going to keep you in equilibrium for that day? And then go do that. I think it's a lot easier to think about feeling intuitively for what you need currently than trying to create a routine end all be all that maybe just doesn't work for you tomorrow or when you're on your period and you really don't want to fucking do anything. You just want to sit on the couch. Like that's okay too. So that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of been helping me. I don't know. A learning, I guess that my mom has always told me it's kind of a funny story, but like it, there's a good lesson in it. But basically when I was like a toddler, I guess I was a picky eater or something. And she went to the doctor and she was like, I just can't get her to eat her vegetables every day. Like she's not eating her vegetables every day it's stressing me out because like I can't give her the right meal. And my, and her, my doctor at the time was like, well, just, is she getting enough in the week? Like think about the Mm. week as a whole and don't worry about like the individual meal. And it's funny now because I think about that literally all the time (laughs) that I'm like, now I'm like, I have to feed myself. (laughs) Same principle of like my mom feeding toddler me, but it's like, okay, yeah, maybe I eat junk food on Friday. Like, has my week been good? Have I gotten a lot of veggies? Have I gotten a lot of whole foods? Did I go to the farmer's market and get something local? Like, looking at from a week and not putting it into such specific timelines of like, am I doing this every day, every hour? It makes it so much easier. And like, day is even a great way to do it. Like, are you sitting a lot? Or like, some days I work longer, but did I move this week a lot? Like, that's great. And I think that's helped me. Um, also, Autumn, you should read Atomic Habits because they talk about this all the time. <laughs> it's a great book. I know. I but bought I it think, my mom. I'm going to yes, steal it back from her. I know. You have to steal it back from her. <laughs> I, 
I'm loving all of this conversation, but I do want to make sure we get to everything we want to talk to. So um, I actually think this is a good way to move into this. Something that you talk about, I've seen you talk about on your TikTok and you kind of touched on it before is like recognizing your feelings. And I'm guessing this maybe is going to go into your learnings and maybe Ayurvedic wellness, but you talked about, um, you had a specific TikTok, and I think somebody asked, how can you tell the difference between a gut feeling and anxiety? Mm. And I think autumn is my best friend. She's very anxious. (laughs) I have a lot of mental health things. And so it is really hard to be like, what is my brain tricking me? And what do I actually follow? And I would love for you to speak more on that. Yeah. Oh, I love this question. Um, (laughs) So for me, I think the important thing to remember is that as much as we treat our mind as this like separate thing, it is a part of our physical system, right? It's mind body complex together and they work hand in hand. And I think the mind is not the best thing to follow because as smart and as sharp as your mind is, it is a sneaky little bastard and it can lie and it can maneuver its way around any unhealthy attachment or aversion. And so it's not always the best gauge of what's going on in your, in your life. Your body, however, cannot lie. It carries the wisdom of literally like the entire history of existence, every little natural optimization is programmed into your body, right? And it only speaks truth. It's like that, like scout with like its little badge on, the little vest, and has all the badge and like a little. It's like okay, danger, you know. So when I think about clarifying my emotions, understanding the difference between a gut feeling and anxiety, I would recommend you look to your body for the signal rather than your head. And for me, this is where I started to get a sense of, and this is practice that I did with my therapist. Like we would be talking about something and she could see like a slight change in my physical posture. And she'd ask me the question, where are you feeling this in your body right now? Where are you feeling this grief? Where are you feeling this anxiety? Where are you feeling this joy? And she'd force me to bring my awareness back into my body and actually locate where I am feeling that either warmth that fluidity or that constriction or whatever it is. And over time, I did this time and time again, I came to realize that my gut is not actually my gut gut. It's my chest and my throat. These two are the most communicative areas of my body. And when I'm feeling anxiety or it's like stranger danger or it's, you know, panic mode, Rana is about to activate, it's a constriction things feel cold. They feel tight. I feel like I can't speak. There's like a lump that enters. My chest feels like I can't breathe and it comes in. When something's a gut feeling, even if it's a gut feeling about a negative thing, there's a sense of like openness and ease. And it feels like my thoughts, my expression has its own internal momentum. Like I can't keep up with it. You know, it's just, it's just about to tell me something but it feels open. It feels relaxed. And I think it's easier to identify that when it's a happy gut feeling. Sometimes when it's a sad gut feeling or or a negative gut feeling, it's like, Ooh, which ones is it? But if you really start to practice that, like when you're feeling something immediately drop into your body, see where it is, get familiar with not only the location, but the quality and the texture of that feeling over time, you can start to build kind of like your own gauge of like, okay, I feel it in my chest. What is it? Is it tight or is it open? Is it fluid or is it blocked? 
And then that'll give you a sense of anxiety or actual knowing. Yeah, I really, that's something that I really struggle with. I have major anxiety, especially around um, plans and just like, you know, following through with things. So Mm. whenever a plan is changed, like say my flight got delayed or we changed the day we're going to leave on a trip, I tell myself, well, maybe that's just happening because I'm going to get in a car accident if we leave three hours later. And Mm -hmm. I'm having a gut feeling that I'm going to get in a car accident if we leave three hours later, or I'm in line uh, for the plane. And I'm like, this is the plane that's going to crash. Like I have a gut feeling. I just need to change my flight, but it's never a gut feeling. It's always anxiety. I never feel like there's an openness or a fluidity. It feels like dying inside. It feels like, (laughs) I don't know. It's the most panicked. It feels like I'm on like gnarly drugs when these feelings happen and they don't, I feel like even if it was a negative gut feeling, I think it would feel, it should feel different than that. I don't think that it should feel feel, more settled. Yeah. Like it it should feel like, I don't know, but that helps me a lot. Honestly, I've always struggled with this. (laughs) And if this is something that I think people can practice even without having emotional triggers. It's like, okay, go find something to go make you angry and then see where you feel in your body. <laughs> one one way that you can do it is um, like telling lies and telling the truth. Like they've done studies and I was listening to Martha Beck, who I freaking love, um, that like when people lie versus tell the truth, like there are different physiological responses. And it, again, it is that that open, that settling, that fluidity, that centeredness with truth telling, and then lies is that constriction. And so there's, there are multiple ways that you can practice this for yourself, but highly recommend just in general, like throughout my entire twenties career experience, the look back that I have now is like, I have known all along what is best for me. I have known all along what makes me happy, what makes me feel centered, what motivates me, what gives me energy. And my body has given me those signals every step of the way. And I was lucky enough to listen to it a couple times, but it wasn't something that I intentionally paid attention to or honored until this moment. And I think if you're going through career development changes, relationship changes, whatever, and you feel spirally, you feel like you don't know what to do, you feel like maybe you're getting mixed signals from the people around you, the best thing you can do for yourself is to stop filling your head with other people's thoughts and come back into your own body because your body has the answers. Your body will tell you what feels right to you. And if that means you need to step away like I did, I was so consumed by other people's thoughts that I took a six-week mental health leave where I intentionally was like, I'm not going to interact with anything or anyone except for my family. To, to get to that place where you can actually hear your own gut again, do it. That's worth it. That's, that's a well-spent chunk of time in your 20s. And it's not going to detract from anything. It's going to make you stronger. It's going to make the rest of your career, your relationships, whatever it is more aligned with what your center of balance actually is because you've actually taken the time to do that work and get familiar with that North star. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's so much pressure 
in your 20s to do everything and be everything. Like that's a big thing I've been feeling. Like a great example is like being pulled. I'm in a long-term relationship. So like being pulled and like the, are you getting married? Are you settling down? Like all of those things. And I'm like, I literally don't know. I'm 23. But then there's the opposite side of that. That's like, be fun, be free. It's your 20s, like live it up. And you're expected to be both. And I think that applies to everything. But I really do feel that in the past, I mean, honestly, like three months for me, I've started making choices that are like solely based on what I specifically want to do and not what I think others want me to do or with others voices in my head and the energy and openness, like you said, that I feel when I'm on those paths is just, it's night and day. Like, and I think that I am now for the first time in my life able to do that, like just mentally and all for all of those reasons. So not saying, oh, it's so easy. You just do the right thing and then you feel better. It took me <laughs> 23 years to get to this, to even be like, oh, I can do something for my own joy. Like it took me <laughs> literally 23 years to think that. And it, it really, it is like night and day. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you loved it as much as we loved making it. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at stillnoplanpod. And check back next Wednesday for our newest episode. See you Wednesday.